Welcome to the Michael Rothstein Show live from Regents Field, Ann Arbor's True Sports Bar at 204 South Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Regents Field also happens to be home of this podcast. Come on down and check out a future episode taping live on Tuesday nights. I'm your host, ESPN reporter, world traveler, and grandma. It's Michigan. I'm Michael Rothstein, and this is a podcast where we discuss the Detroit Lions, the NFL, and whatever else is going on in the world of football and eventually the world of sports. And the only logical place to start talking about the Detroit Lions this week is with Matthew Stafford, or the absence of Matthew Stafford. The veteran missed his first start since 2010 on Sunday, and the Lions suffered without him. Detroit's downfield passing game was almost non-existent. Jeff Driscoll played okay in relief of Stafford after finding out that morning that he'd start, but he just didn't throw the ball down the field. Driscoll averaged 5.8 yards per attempt and really attempted almost as many passes at the line of scrimmage or behind it as Stafford had in the last three games combined. It's a different offense and a different dynamic with Matthew Stafford out. And based on where the Lions are in this season and in the division, it doesn't bode well for the rest of 2019. Stafford is clearly injured and back injuries are not to be trifled with. That is not clear how much, if at all, Stafford will practice this week, at least leads to some questions about his availability for Dallas on Sunday and beyond. And that's another thing, too. At what point do the Lions consider resting Stafford until he's all the way healed instead of letting him play when he's maybe not 100%? He's always going to want to play. Heck, he was considering dressing even though he knew he wouldn't start just in case he was needed in an emergency to hand off or hold or really whatever. He was talking about that on Monday. But the question for the Lions now when it comes to Stafford are short-term gains and realistically, Detroit would need to win out or at least get a little bit of help at this point to have any shot at the playoffs and the long-term future of their franchise quarterback who they paid so much money to. Stafford has proven this season that he's one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL and he fits well in Daryl Bevel's offense. He's proven he's worth the money that the Lions are paying him. He has a pair of receivers he's comfortable with in Marvin Jones and Kenny Galladay, and they're both under contract for 2020. So you know Stafford is part of your future, and you know that this offense how it's constructed right now in the passing game is something you can really build on because Galladay, Jones, Stafford, they're all veterans and they've proven what they can do. At this point, the future might be more important than the present with the playoffs less than a fleeting possibility. And if they were to lose to Dallas on Sunday, very, 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 very remote. Maybe Stafford's back gets better. Maybe he, Matt Patricia, and the doctors can manage his pain and he's able to go back out on the field sooner than later. But it's something to consider as the season goes along, especially if Detroit loses a four of their last five going into after losing to Chicago, continues on its current trend. And there is one other thing to consider here, too. If the Lions were to save Stafford for the future, the other, the other benefit is it can give Detroit coaches time to see if Driscoll or David Blau might be the long-term backup option for Stafford. After back injuries the past two seasons, it's all the more clear Detroit needs to have a serviceable plan to back up Matthew Stafford. If they do decide to sit Stafford, and they've given no indication at this point that they will, this could be an opportunity and extended action to find out if they have one in Driscoll or Blau. The Lions are clearly a better team with Matthew Stafford. If he's truly able to get to the point where he's healthy, then he should continue a season where he's playing at a top 10 quarterback level. But the health, if it's a question, might be worth erring on the side of caution. With that, the sit-up straight star of the week is Trey Flowers. The Lions signed him a big deal this offseason, and while it took a little bit, he's starting to come on the past few weeks. He had seven tackles and a sack on Sunday against Chicago and might have been the Lions' best defender. 
for that reason, and since the Lions didn't have a ton of standout performances, he's this week's sit-up straight star of the week. And the slouch of the week is the Lions' run game. It's getting difficult at this point, but Detroit's run game has been in tatters the past few weeks. on Johnson's out. Ty Johnson's in concussion protocol. And Detroit wasn't producing on the ground even when Ty Johnson was in the game. And this was a game where the Lions needed it since Stafford missed his first start since 2010. His replacement, Jeff Driscoll, led all Detroit rushers with 37 yards, and that's just not good enough. Paul Perkins averaged 1.3 yards a carry. J.D. McKissick, who's more of a receiver anyway, averaged 3.6. If the Lions are going to have to play without Stafford for any length of time, they need more from their run game. Otherwise, this could be a long last month and a half of the season. We'll be back with our guests tonight, Lions offensive lineman Tyrell Crosby and ESPN Cowboys reporter Todd Archer right after this break. My first guest tonight plays offensive tackle for the Detroit Lions. He's had a love affair with Chipotle for a <laughs> while now. And depending on what happens with Rick Wagner, he could make his third career start Sunday against Dallas. Welcome Tyrell Crosby to the <laughs> Michael Rothstein Show. Thanks for coming in on it's not snowing now, but the roads still are pretty terrible. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thanks for coming down here. I know it took a little bit to get here. And uh, let's start with last Sunday. Mm-hmm. Rick Wagner gets hurt. You get thrown in there very short notice. What's that like for a player? Because other positions rotate, right? Like wide receivers, running backs, other than quarterback, which mm-hmm. we're going to get to, by the way. Like offensive linemen don't really rotate. So what's that like for you when – all of a sudden, you're like mid-drive, oh, I have to go in the game now. Uh, really just got to trust yourself and know uh, you're going in there for a reason. The coaches believe in you, and uh, the rest of the O-line all believe in you, and just do your best to play confident each play. Is that something that, like, mentally, like, does it take a snap or two to get kind of into it a little bit, or how does that uh, – I'm just – because I've never played offensive line. I'm about half of your size, and – I've, I just don't know what that's like. So how does how do you approach that? I know, like you said, you have to kind of know people have confidence. But mm-hmm. mentally, does it is it right away? Or is it like <laughs> that first, second snap, you're like, okay, like, got to learn my guy? Uh, it is different than actually starting in the game and then just rather than uh, getting thrown in. But I kind of just jump, like, all in and just go <laughs> after it and uh, – it did help that uh, a couple of players prior to that, um, they had me in at the big or the extra alignment. Yeah. So uh, I kind of was a little bit warmed up. So that helped. I would say if you didn't have that, would that be a different thing you think? Or does that not really matter? Uh, I try not to make it matter and just try to take it all. Like I'll treat it as the same as if I was starting, just go do my thing. Obviously, Matthew Stafford didn't play. First mm-hmm. time in a really long time. It's yeah. 2010. What's that like for a team on a game day knowing that he's not going to be out there? Like I talked to some of your teammates after the game about it, but I'm just curious from your perspective, what's that like knowing that? Um, personally, it's just trust the next man up, really. Um, Dreskel had a great game in my opinion, and it was awesome to watch him step up and do what he did throughout that entire game and then watch the team all not like skip a beat and they just play like they usually play. But is it surprising, I guess, when you find that out at first? Like, when they come to you Saturday night, Sunday morning, and say, hey, Matthew Stafford's not playing today. Is, is it like, like a little like soft murmur? Or is everybody like, what? Or is it just kind <laughs> of accepted? Or? Uh, um, especially in a physical game that we play, you kind of know 
at any moment anyone could be out of a game. Yeah. So having that happen, we all just looked at each other and just said, we really got to just trust who's ever going in. And that's what I feel like we did. And even though we lost, I felt like the team really rallied behind Dreskel, and it was awesome to see. What's it like going through a season like this? I mean, you guys have lost four or five now, and, mm-hmm. and we're not going to harp too much on football because it's <laughs> yeah. generally not what I talk about mm-hmm. in this podcast. But I'm just curious, when you lose four or five, like how do you deal with that mentally? And what's that like? Because for you, I, I mean, did you lose – how many games did you lose in college? What, 10, if that, 11? Yeah. You've lost more than that <laughs> in the pros. <laughs> um it's tough, and losing's never fun, um, especially when you're at this level. Everyone's competitive. Everyone wants to win. So you really just got to look in the mirror and see what you can do better, um, whether that's give a better look on the scout offense throughout the week. Um, just try to do better on one play in the game. Just kind of whatever. You got to really look in the mirror and see what you can do to not lose. So – Stepping away from football a mm-hmm. bit, you were born in Utah, but you yep. grew up in Las Vegas, yep. or just outside Las Vegas. People from the Midwest see Vegas, they see Vegas, like, you know, <laughs> Wayne Newton, like, mm-hmm. you know, Britney Spears residency, <laughs> slot machines, the hangover, all that, right? Yeah. What's real Vegas like yeah. to grow up in? Because I would think that it would be like, you know, you'd be learning blackjack at age like four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have the strip, but there's so much more to it. Um, even then, Las Vegas is such a small community. Um, there's so many different people that I know, like, outside who I didn't grow up with or anything, like, from college and stuff, saying, oh, yeah, I went to Vegas, and uh, such and such said, oh, I know someone who went to Oregon. Their name was Tyrell. And, that, like, they instantly connect and realize they have a mutual friend with me. Um, but also there's, like, you have a bunch of uh, hiking areas. You have, like, uh, Red Rock. Yeah, Lake Mead, which people are always surprised. There's a lake in Las, or well, Nevada, that area, and uh, there's just so much outdoor stuff to do, and that's something I really like to do. Uh, other than the strip, what else is there though, and all that? Were you was, always an outdoors guy yeah. growing up, or yeah, even like when I was back in Utah, uh, when I was young, I always loved to be outside, doing anything outside. So I just since a young age, that's been me. What's, like, your favorite outdoor? Because, like you said, there's Lake Mead, there's hiking. Mm-hmm. I saw on Instagram photos of you whitewater rafting that may or may oh, not yeah. have gone well. I don't know. Like, oh, yeah. That was while I was in Oregon. This uh, family friend, his name is Eric Messner. Uh, one day, he's like, oh, you want to go kayaking? And I saw his photos. I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> um, but finally, I built up enough, like, courage and said, yeah, I'm down to go. He took me out. He was on the uh, upper part of the Mackenzie River. And I pretty much went one time and fell in love with it. It's it's just like the amount of respect you have to have for the water is kind of fun and just it's humbling. Because I fell out one time going down a rapid, and I realized, like, that water is no joke. And I just gained so much respect for it. And uh, it is a fun thing to do. And for me, just because I love, like, well, all the lifting like, I have to do and everything, I use muscles that I never knew I had. So it's kind of challenging also to see this guy easily just paddle down. He hasn't worked out much since he uh, used to wrestle back in college. And he's just breezing past me where I'm struggling each little paddle stroke to try to keep up with him. And it just kind of made me realize, like, try to learn a new skill and it challenged me. 
Wait, so how long ago was that, just for, so people can understand? Um, last time I went was, I think the senior, or well, the summer going is my senior year. Now, so like. you're kayaking, mm-hmm. and legitimately, you're, like, you fell out? Yeah. Like, <laughs> were, <laughs> we're going down, uh, I think it was a class two plus rapid. So it was big, but not, like, anything extreme. Or it might have been three plus. And it's called, like, Martin's Rapid. <laughs> and... The best part was, like, this was the very first time, so I think this was probably, like, my sophomore year. Uh, I fell out at the very top of the rapid. <laughs> I, I just, like, right as I fell out, I remember Eric told me, hold on to either your raft or your uh, paddle, mainly just so it's easier to get. It's easier to get one thing than both of them. So I literally just threw my paddle and grabbed onto the side of my kayak and just went down the rapid in my kayak, freaking out, and then... I uh, just kind of realized, I'm like, oh, do I want to keep doing this? And it, uh, I kind of just realized it was whatever and kept going. Did you actually go underwater, though? Like, were you underwater for a couple seconds? or I was underwater for, like, felt like 10 seconds, but in reality it was, like, a half a second. Yeah, because, no, I, went, I used to go white water rafting as a kid, mm-hmm. and that was, like, the one thing. They're like, if you fall out in the rapids, just, like, let it go. Yeah, don't Like, do not it. fight it because yeah. you're going to be screwed if you do. Pretty much, yeah. You just got to relax and just know you're going to be okay, especially you have a life jacket. Trust it and just let the water do its thing, and you'll be okay. Is that tough to do as a – I mean, you're at that point a college football player. You're 320 pounds. You're, what, 6'5". <laughs> uh-huh. I mean – you're used to being able to overpower things. Like, is that difficult to mentally say, okay, I can't fight this? Yeah, mentally, I love that, though, because uh, it really made me just humble, like, become humble about it. And Because the first time, I just wanted to muscle everything and just use straight force, and I realized I couldn't. And it, it was fun to realize, like, <laughs> that water's a lot stronger than you are. So growing up in Vegas, uh-huh. like we, what we were talking about, you seem to run into a lot of interesting human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I wrote about right after you were drafted, Stitch. I wrote about Stitch. Uh-huh. And it seems like you have a relationship with Austin Dillon mm-hmm. and Titus O'Neill from WWA, WWE. Oh. Like, is that just a Vegas thing that you just kind of accept and get used to? Or <laughs> is uh, that a you thing? Or um, It's kind of a Vegas thing, too, um, especially growing up there. You're naturally see everybody and you being from vegas like connections are huge um so early on like you learn to just make connections with people so like austin Dillon, uh he's number three he's the number three car in nascar uh he and i have the same like tailor for our suits so that's how we originally met um and he was in vegas and i saw that they had a race coming up and i'd never gone to nascar race i'm like oh this is a perfect opportunity to venture out into a new sport because growing up I had zero respect for NASCAR um, I thought oh it's just a left turn whatever why is that so hard and so I really wanted to go check out a NASCAR event and he's like yeah hit me up got me tickets uh had the opportunity to sit uh in the pit area which was so loud but it was a blast and realized how much there is to uh, NASCAR and all the strategy and just I don't get how they do it. It's there's a lot to it, and I have a huge amount of respect for them. Did it change your opinion of like just driving in general? Uh, because a lot of yeah. people who drive, like you drive on nine, you know, on ninety four here, yeah. and you're like, you know, I can handle that. I can totally do that. Oh yeah, uh, it definitely changed my mind, especially uh, the first time I kind of made a little sharp turn uh, when you're going ninety four and want to get onto uh, Southfield. 
first time making that little like that left uh, turn. I'm like, oh, NASCAR drivers do this at over 100 miles per hour, and I'm fr- afraid to do it at 45 miles per hour. <laughs> Have you gotten past that? Like, do you are you comfortable <laughs> at like 55 now? Like, are you- I usually just try to stay slower is better. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely uh, it's awesome to like gain a new appreciation for NASCAR through him. What so? A lot of people, obviously, since we're speaking of interesting humans, yeah. I guess let's before I move on here, who's the most interesting human that you kind of have a relationship with in Vegas? Uh, in Vegas, um, this one's more of a random, not necessarily a random person, but he's not like a huge name. His name is Paul Shea. He's one of Phil Knight's best friends. And it was kind of neat. After one of our games... He overheard me talk about how much I love living in Henderson. And he kind of came over and started asking me questions about it. And then I remember I was, it was during uh, this past offseason, I get a message from one of the guys who worked at Oregon. His name is Thomas. And he's like, yeah, uh, Uncle Phil's friend Paul wants to go to lunch with you. I'm like, what? So I was like, okay. Um, met him at lunch and realized he ended up moving there just because what I told him, how, like, all the things I loved about living in Henderson. And so whenever, well, when I was back home, him and I would always go grab lunch and just, he taught me so much just, like, random things and just had a bunch of fun stories to share about when he used to be uh, an AD at Cal. And just a whole bunch of just life stories. That's a lot of pressure, though. If he moved there because of what you were saying, are you kind of like... Man, I hope he likes it because otherwise, <laughs> um, for me, I was like, "Oh, where's your real estate agent? I give me some commission too," because he's he owns a lot of retail, like retail um, shops in like areas in San Diego, and that's where he made a lot of his living. Also, so uh, I was like, he moved from San Diego to Henderson, which yeah, wow, and he said he prefers Henderson a lot more. He might be one of the few people in, <laughs> like, the U.S. that's like that. I, I don't know. I mean, you, you live in Henderson, too. Maybe yeah. you also prefer Henderson to San Diego. I, I but, okay, so you, you and Phil, like, that, you and Shay, that's it. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, to me, I'm in San Diego's paradise. So, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, uh, but to be fair, he's out there with age. And if you're, like, an older person, that's a great spot to live is in Henderson just because everything's so close to you and it's – Super low-key. Are they thinking of putting you on the Chamber of Commerce? I mean, you're getting people to move there. I mean, I wouldn't say no to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, you mentioned Uncle Phil. Uh-huh. For those who don't know, that's Phil Knight. That's Nike, Phil Knight. That's mm-hmm. Oregon, Phil Knight. <laughs> What's that relationship like? You seem to have a pretty strong relationship with mm-hmm. him. Either that or he just takes photos with every <laughs> Oregon player and they all post them. I, I don't yeah. know. But uh, it, it, you're, it seems like you're around him a lot. Yeah. Um, super fortunate in the fact that he is someone like, or I'm someone that he does keep in contact with and all that. And Whenever we're in the same place, we usually link up, which is awesome. Uh, just take this past time I was at Oregon for the during our bye week is Oregon versus Cal. And I talked to him for like 10 minutes prior to the game. And then I'm just still hanging out on the sideline, and someone comes down and says, Phil and Penny, Penny being Phil's, uh, Phil's wife, want to invite you up to their suite. And I'm just like, what? 
even like because I've talked to Phil so many times and had amazing conversations, but still like just to hear that he wants me to go up into a suite and then the entire time I sat right beside him, it was just such a unreal moment. Just knowing everything he's accomplished, reading his book, and just knowing the person that he is, and realizing that guy has your back is awesome. And ha- for him to have someone literally get sent down from a suite walk onto the like the sideline on the field to come get you was awesome were you were you taken aback at that were you were you nervous i mean like you said yeah. you know him but uh-huh. are you just like there's a di- there's a difference between just seeing a guy mm-hmm. and talking to him for a minute and being like i'm gonna go hang in his suite and sit next to him for a quarter or a half however long it was <laughs> yeah it was, uh, i was definitely taken aback from it and it was just a cool moment and just realizing that you do mean more than you think to him was awesome it, did you say that to him? Did you had how do you express that to him? Like, did you uh, send him a thank you card? Like, <laughs> um, I did send a thank you card not to him to the guy who went <laughs> down to grab me. <laughs> his name's H and he's um, I don't know his exact position for U of O. I think he's like the assistant athletic director or something like that in the athletic department. And he's always been like someone who has done a good job of just trying to teach me. Definitely, uh, like a life skills, and it's kind of hard to describe. He just does. He's like a really good role model to me. Thank you. <laughs> the thank you, by the way, Tyrell got a burger that just <laughs> arrived. So hopefully he won't chew while he's talking. But <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, so doing some of my research here, mm-hmm. were you in Sigma Chi at Oregon? No. No. Okay. You just because there was an Instagram post about it. Were you in? In Greek life at Oregon, then or no? Uh huh. Okay, I'm so remember. I know like one of my best friends. Her name's Haley Geller. She was in Delta Gamma, and so it always like joke around. At, or well, I'd always joke around every time I watch Passer uh, Sorority do like the uh, their like little anchor down thing, and I'd always just like send her a picture. But that's pretty much the extent. Okay, so like, so, th- so that was just a random thing that you probably posted in college. That mm-hmm. okay. If you if you can't tell, like you post a lot on Instagram, by the way, and on Twitter, you're. <laughs> I've noticed. When is that? Is that something that you've always done? Is like social media like an actual thing for you? Because some players mm-hmm. really don't want anything to do with it, especially mm-hmm. once they get to the pros. You seem to have embraced it maybe more than most. Yeah, uh, it's just a fun way to reach out to people and also just kind of show who you are. Because um, there's a lot of people that are so just not true to themselves on social media. And so most of my posts, unless they're kind of like ads, are really like who I am. And it's just a fun way to express that. Is that something that's important to you to kind of, like you said, because most people aren't true to themselves. Mm -hmm. There's always the Instagram influencers and the Instagram, you know, the joke of like there's Instagram and then there's reality. Reality, Like, Are you trying to send a message there? Are you trying to Uh, to show something or? Not really. It's just more fun to just, if you, like, if I want to post something, I'm just going to go post it. Um. And not really think about it. Um, and that's kind of just who I am, I feel like. What's the most interesting post, or what's like the post that you've heard the most about? Um, I probably would say the re- like one of the most recent ones when I dressed up as Medea for Halloween. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that a little bit later on, but <laughs> since you brought it up, uh-huh. you go as Medea, you go as Uncle Phil from the Fresh Prince mm-hmm. the year Lasser. before. Where did... Is it just – is someone giving you costume ideas or are you just kind of looking in the mirror and saying, okay, <laughs> I, I can maybe kind of look like this person, so I'm going to go with it and it's easy? Like where does that 
walk me through your Halloween costume process. Uh, well, with both of them, people are just joking, like calling me Uncle Phil. I've been called Medea. I'm like, I don't care. I'm gonna embrace it and make a costume out of it. Uh, take like, the Medea outfit, for example. One of my really good friends, he was our DN at Oregon. Now he's a DN at Dallas. Um, Jalen Jelks. He would always call me Medea. I'm like, oh, this is a perfect time to at least dress up as Medea. So that's where I got that one from. And then Uncle Phil, I can't remember who first called me that, but I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to just embrace it and make a costume out of it. Is that going to be weird? I mean, like you said, your your guy was the defensive end in Oregon, yeah. defensive end in Dallas now. There's a chance you're going to be lined up right opposite him here on Sunday. Is that strange when you have a relationship with a guy that you're lined up right across from? Well, with him, he's, I believe, on injury reserve right now. Oh, but yeah. yeah. But, um, it, you brought it up randomly, yeah. so I just didn't have that in my notes, no. yeah. Um, but it's always fun to kind of, if you're, like, going against someone you know, even back in college, if I knew the DN or something like that. It's always fun just because, like, this is your one time you can actually go hit them and not feel like a jerk. <laughs> is there a guy that you've really enjoyed hitting more than most? Uh, not really. It's It's all the same. I mean – Afterwards, like, if it's one of my friends, I, we always, like, go give each other a hug and stuff. And just, it's always, like, I don't know how to describe it. It's a fun thing, though. Uh, so, on your cleats mm-hmm. last year, you wore stomp out cancer. Yeah. Is, why does that cause? That cause seems to mean a lot to you. You've had multiple posts, mm-hmm. like, not to, again, social media, but yeah. you've, you've also talked a bit about cancer. Why is that, why does cancer mean a lot, or... Obviously, cancer prevention means a lot to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with the stomp out cancer, it was my soft, like in between, like like sophomore season and junior season. University of Oregon, Nike, and then Doran Becker uh, Children's Hospital. They usually do like, well, Nike and Doran Becker usually do a collab called like the Doran Becker Collection, and Oregon wanted to get involved and make a whole uniform about it. And then everything, all the proceeds from that, are, or well, all the profit are going to go to Dorn Becker's. And I got partnered up with this girl named Sophia. And she was, I think, seven or eight at the time. She was playing soccer, fell off a soccer ball, hit her head, got a concussion. And they went to go get an MRI on her head. And while they were doing that, they realized there was a tumor in her brain. Yeah. <laughs> so... The first time I met her, she was telling us her story. And literally, like, I'm sitting there in a room full of me, um, two other Oregon players at the time, three kids, and then a bunch of, like, Oregon people, like, equipment-wise, and then Nike executives. And she's talking, and I'm, like, about to tear up just listening to her talk and realize all the things that she overcame. And it was awesome because I ended up getting partnered with her. (laughs) And her and I got to design the the uniform versus Nebraska, and we got put in charge of the helmets and then the sideline gear. So I pretty much, like, had her do most of the design, and then if it didn't make sense, I kind of would help her correct it. And what we ended up coming up with was a chrome helmet. Originally, she wanted blue just to kind of show the sky's the limit, but Oregon didn't have any blue in their uniform. So we went with chrome instead because it could reflect the sky. And then uh, we had her signature and the two other guys signatures on the back of the helmet and then she came up with the this duck stomping out cancer and that 
ended up becoming like the biggest theme about the whole uh, uniform. And when she told me about it and showed me the, her initial drawing, I literally like just I started like tearing up from it. It was just such an awesome design from her at that age, and it was so like you could tell she put so much time and effort into it, and uh, it was just I was blown away by it. So. You and her actually designed uniforms for a game? Yeah, so it was like the my senior year um, Nebraska versus Oregon game. Do you so do you still have that jersey? Do you still have that helmet because you designed it? Like is that Yeah. So I got well like after you graduate you can get all your jerseys back. So I, that's like the one jersey like someone asked to buy from for me. I'm like, yeah, no way. Um, so that's probably out of every jersey I own my favorite one. Really? Would you have it framed so like is it in your it's back in plates, yeah. It's back in Vegas, framed. The helmet too. Do you have like the helmet in a case also? Mm -hmm. Do you still? And obviously, I didn't, do you still talk to her? Is she still alive? Mm -hmm. or? Yeah, I still talk to her and keep in contact with her, her dad, her mom. So, it's awesome. And uh, when I broke my foot in college, this was pro or after meeting her, it was cool. She sent me like a care package and no, and it's my pen tweet right now. Um, but that was one of the coolest things I've ever gotten. Was that care package? So what was yeah. in it? There was cookies, a bunch of like other like treats, just all homemade treats, and then the letter. And the letter is what like the most important thing to me in that. And it was just pretty much her telling me uh, I can overcome that. And just reading that letter from her and knowing everything she's overcame in life at such a young age was just always so inspiring to me, and still is. When. So when was last like do you talk to her regularly now or like has she been uh, out here have her and her family been out here to see you play yet or no they uh, they live in Portland but uh, not too long ago it was after the Chargers game uh, like me and like their family like we all like just messaged each other so when you get involved with a kid like that mm -hmm. you're in college and then obviously you know there's so much that goes on being a football player in college and also the school thing and all yeah that. like how do you find time and how do you kind of mentally go through that because you have no connection to this girl before you meet yeah. her and then all of a sudden it seems like you've developed a pretty close bond with mm -hmm. her or, or at least had while you were there a pretty mm -hmm. close bond with her like how do you fit that in how do you approach that uh for me mentally it's pretty easy just because i know my time to them means so much more than i i, I could ever imagine and it's pretty easy to give my time to someone so knowing that they genuinely appreciate it and cherish it. Makes it super easy to find time, and then just like to try to balance school and all that. It's kind of fun realizing like you can take a break from school, like not think about school, not think about football, and just truly give your time to someone. Obviously, they were different things, yeah. right? But you you don't know where I'm going, so you're saying yeah before. <laughs> so in eighth grade, you had a pretty. Uh. You see yeah, now you're no, saying no, no, no. now you so in eighth grade for those people you had a pretty serious sinus deal right like you were hospitalized yeah. you had you had surgery right uh huh what uh -huh. what happened there because I don't think anyone really knows about that <laughs> unless they saw like one specific thing that you posted like what mm -hmm. what happened there as a kid because I mean you were not that much older than her not cancer I'm assuming yeah. right but so I remember it was I had like a shoulder problem from football so I ended up going to get a MRI on my shoulder. And then as we were leaving, I asked my mom if I could just stay home, not go back to school, because it was like 10 o'clock. And I really just didn't feel good, didn't want to go to school. So she's like, ah, blah, 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 fine. So she let me stay home for the day. And then it was 
can't remember what movie exactly it was on, or I don't remember the name of it. It's. Uh, oh, this is gonna bug me. It's like Nick. It's a Nicolas Cage movie when he's a prisoner and then he they steal the plane. Con, Con Air. Air. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, Con Air was on. And I remember falling asleep, and then waking up and just like was in, just completely just sweaty, overheating, freaking out, and I couldn't open either of my eyes. And then I think I kind of had a panic attack and like passed out. Because then I remember waking back up, and I can remember it like I partially was able to open my eyes, realize there's a scene of Con Air when they, they crash and they're in Las Vegas, and all of a sudden I see my sister walk down and she's like looks at me kind of weird and just freaks out and then I, she like said something I can't remember and I remember getting up going to the bathroom realizing both my eyes are pretty much swollen shut then go see my mom and she thought maybe I had an allergic reaction gave me some Benadryl slept the rest of the night and went to the doctors the next day and then doctor thought he knew what it was didn't and it was like I think I took four or five different trips to him uh, trying to diagnosed me and what I had and eventually he told me just to go see a specialist and the same day he like told me to go see a specialist was the day he said I should be back to normal and be in school and I saw the specialist and I remember being in kind of like the uh, like kind of not waiting like the actual office and he just had the lights off and I could overhear him talking to my my mom in the other room and he said oh yeah he has pots puffy tumor and eighth grade I, I heard tumor I immediately think cancer so I'm freaking out but then like right after he kind of described it more and realized it's just what they call it and I had a abscess of my frontal sinuses and then I had like a polyp in my frontal sinuses so went to the hospital was in the hospital for a week and they did surgery and then I was ended up being out of school for a month and that was kind of a weird time because it's eighth grade um Towards the end of September, so I remember like Halo ODST came out on the day I went to the hospital. <laughs> um, the things you remember, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, so it was like pro- September twentieth, I think, about that time. And it was weird because at the time, some kids had phones, but not many. And I mean, I had a twin sister in school, and she kind of knew what was wrong with me, but not fully. So when I actually went back to school a little bit, like a month after that whole incident uh, it was so weird for me to readjust and seeing people I haven't seen in a month even though some kids are used to it during summer break but it wasn't summer break so a lot of kids thought like I died or something and it was a huge huge adjustment for me to get back to school and trying to learn a bunch of different things so that was during football season too right uh, eighth grade yeah eighth, um, during or in Vegas during that time is there there might be football during that time, but, like, I wasn't in football during that Oh, you weren't? Usually okay. I did, like, uh, spring ball, like, okay. spring football. That so how, how long did it take you to recover from that? Um, completely. It took a good amount of time, especially dealing with, like, the sinus headaches that followed, um, doing my, like, checkups with the doctors. Um, my least favorite thing was they would have to put an endoscope into my sinuses, and I have small sinuses. So I could feel the tube literally just, like, crawling into my sinuses and, like, every little inch or, like, any movement I could feel perfectly, and I hated it so much. Man, that sounds just awful. Like, did yeah. that – are you fine now, I'm assuming? Like, or do you still have to, like, get 
checkups every once in a while on your head or uh right now yeah i'm completely fine and have been pretty much for a while like since probably like 10th grade this, the po- like afterwards was the worst thing was like just the sinus headaches and that's pretty much it do you still get sinus headaches or um like especially right now like if the weather is messed up or uh not so much anymore yeah like i used to mainly in high school but since then i've been fine so moving to something much lighter mm-hmm. you take a dance class in college <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> so I, had you had dance experience before or was this uh no i <laughs> i needed a art class or well like an art credit and i was already in a art class to like during that same time so my advisor was like yeah just take dance I'm like, okay, I'm assuming he's going to have other guys I know in that class with me, um, like other football players. I was the only one, and I was one of three guys, and it, I have no rhythm. <laughs> so it was a, a long, long course for me, but it was fun, and just realizing how exhausting dancing can be was awesome. Uh, it's just, I always like to see things from a different perspective and realize if you're a dancer they deserve to be respected just as much as a football player even though it doesn't look that hard i realize it is that hard and yeah. it is exhausting so like was this ballroom dance was this like modern dance what type of dance um, class was this it was a little bit of everything because i remember we learned like african dance we learned like uh our african dances we learned ballerina stuff we learned a lot of different dances and they weren't all difficult is that, do you still have those skills now, or those go away immediately? Like, if you are you like, I'm not dancing ever again after this. Um, even after I practiced them, I didn't have any. I was horrible. What'd you get in that class? Um, well, like, I still I got like a B plus, but you would like how the class was. I think it was three days or no, two days you were dancing, and then one day because it was a three day, you had it three times a week. So two days dancing, and then your Friday you were in the classroom like okay. learning a different set a move like genre of dance or whatever so as you would dance and you'd get slightly graded but more of the grade came from classroom stuff okay so it wasn't like a performance based class like you didn't have to get up and perform at the end of the semester did you like um you you had to like choreograph a dance but she didn't judge too hard what did you what type of dance did you choreograph um i just let all the girls in my group decide and i kind of just hid behind them all which (laughs) I mean, I was a lot bigger than all of them, so I kind of had a crouch, too, and still couldn't hide behind anybody. Did you, like, kind of, you know, like, how, like, the kid plays, like, <laughs> you got the tallest person who has no rhythm playing, like, the tree? Like, were you basically playing, like, a tree in the background? or? Yeah, but a tree out of rhythm. <laughs> Man, that's just... It was bad. That's just absolutely awful. <laughs> wow. I, <laughs> I'm not even sure where to go. <laughs> Did that help you with football at all? Like, the actual dance part of it, or... Did you have such little rhythm during it that you're like, uh, I mean, no, like if I really focused on it, I can see the correlation carry over into football, but just doing one class, it didn't really help much. If anything, it just helped with a little bit of cardio, man. I, damn, (laughs) (laughs) that, that's just, I I don't even know where to go from there. Um, (laughs) There's, there's no good way to transition to the other to this question, which is kind of one of the last things I wanted to hit on. Yeah. But going back to Vegas, uh-huh. um, 
you're a Vegas native. I think a lot of people, when you were drafted, mm-hmm. the one of the things they knew about you was wearing the Vegas Strong jersey. Yeah. What was that that day like for you when you heard about the shooting? Because you were a senior and you were you were at Oregon at that mm-hmm. point. So what would take me through that day for you? So I remember seeing a whole bunch of posts about it, like the Route 91 concert, and one of my old high school coaches. He was our special team coach, but I also was like really close with their entire family um me my best friend his family and then his name is Darren Limbinati and like their family we all stayed a week together in a beach house uh in Oceanside California so I was really close with this family and he was the one coordinating it all so I follow all their family members on social media so I saw all their posts um my friend Abigail I saw her posts being there and just a bunch of other people and I see there's a shooting in Vegas. I'm like, oh, okay, North Las Vegas is not the best part of town. That's, pro- that's what they're referring to. And then I get a f- message from my friend Alec and saying, no, it's like way worse than that. I'm like, what? Look on Twitter, ch- like start refreshing as much as I can. And then I start seeing like, oh, this is at the concert. And I, I'm like, maybe it was just like a little thing that happened outside, argument, that's, that's all. And then I realized it's a lot, lot bigger than that. And instantly just started having, like, panic. I'm like, oh, I, who's there? Who's there? Who do I need to, like, try to get a hold of, see if they're okay? And so that was happening. And I was just glued to my phone. And it was just – I was, like, in my room on my couch just freaking out, just trying to figure out what's going on. And after, like, 20 minutes, I remember just sprinting downstairs because our downstairs TV was the only TV with cable. So it's me, my uh, all my roommates – and then we're just, like, staring at the TV watching the news as it's, like, all unfolding. And just, like, hearing everything that's happening was just, like, there's no way this is possible. And it was just so traumatic for me, even not being, like, though I wasn't there, just knowing a lot of people that I care a lot about was there. Still, it was just shocking to me. And um, realizing, like, my brother, um, he, like, got a bunch of, like, water bottles because he had a truck. Um got a bunch of water bottles and like from the store drove over down there after everything cleared up it was like passing out water bottles trying to get help to as many people my friend savannah she i'm trying to i think like she cut a hole in the gate and she had a truck and like was driving people to the hospital and she was one of the people like honored at the uh the las vegas bowl that year and uh, that one was crazy because i've known her forever too and, and that whole like night just was insane to me and just so unreal and even now driving past uh, Mandalay Bay and just kind of staring in that direction I'd get like chills from because I just know how devastating and how many people were affected by that night so Did you think about going back to Vegas at that point to help? Like, Do you go to your coaches at that point and say listen I have to go home I have to get out of here I don't I, Like I thought about it but I knew like there was only so much I could do um so, like, when that all was happening, I just tried to use, like, my social media presence as much as I could. Just trying to, like, help connect people with, like, if I saw anybody, like, oh, have you seen this, like, missing person tweet, I'd make sure I get that out and just whatever I could to do, whatever I could to do to help from being in Eugene, I tried doing. Has Vegas recovered from that? I mean, you've been back a few mm. times since. Um, recovered fully, I don't think think so but i truly like the city itself got a lot stronger i think um 
just a bond everyone shares and just a pride everyone has in being from Vegas, especially if you like, even though I wasn't really born there, I've lived there majority of my life and just the people that have been born there are just raised there for majority of their life. How much pride they take in being from Vegas is awesome. Yeah, I mean, as you said, it was a small. It's a small town. Yeah, it, or it's a city, but it feels like a small town. So mm-hmm. did that? Did that make it feel even smaller? Yeah, it did. Um, and just everyone was there for one another, which was awesome. And like, even like all the industries, as like hotel industries, really like got behind and just tried to do as much as they could to help and just it connected everyone in a way. So we end every with every guest we have. We end with a few. Quick hit questions mm-hmm. if you're game. So, yeah. your go-to Chipotle meal? Dang, I've been trying to hide this one because um, everyone always asks. But going to Chipotle, walk in. This is gonna be the exact order too. It's kind of sad. Um, it's, it's like fifty-fifty if I get a bowl or a burrito. It depends if I'm eating like there or if I'm going. If I'm going, I usually get the bowl. But uh, so I get white rice, black beans, double chicken. And then they slide it over the little glass because that's like the dividers where the, uh, the proteins are. Then I get medium salsa, and then sour cream and cheese, and then I ask for extra cilantro, which they kind of usually look at you weird, like, how do you know about that? I'm like, I know. It's in the back in the fridge. Go get the cilantro. And then if it's a, if it's a bowl, I usually ask for the vinaigrette also. And that's your, and that's your thing? That that's like, they wrap it and you're, you're good to go? Yeah. Do you ever deviate? No. I, it's even since high school. Like I've been going to Chipotle since fourth grade. Fourth grade? Yeah. When I was younger, I was foolish and usually would get the steak. But now I'm like, in high school, I realized the steak's usually inconsistent on if it's going to be dry or not. So I just stuck with the chicken. So we were talking about before, but Medea or Uncle Phil, which actually do you think was a better Halloween costume? Um, for laughs, Medea. For accuracy, Uncle Phil. Who is the coolest, like we were talking about, you've met a lot of interesting people. Who's the uh, coolest person you've ever met? Coolest person I've ever met? Um, Tony Hawk. You're an MMA boxing guy as well. You and I have talked a bit about that. Who do you think is the best fighter, pound for pound, right now in MMA and in boxing? Um, gee, uh, I don't know really for either. Um, Boxing, I mean, Floyd's retired, but overall, I think Floyd's one of the best. Um, even though he's really arrogant, man's record speaks for itself. Um, I, yeah, it's hard for either one because, especially now, there's just so, so many good fighters out there. Like, I prefer like the old, like two, like the mid two thousands MMA, like UFC with like Leoto Machida and all them, and like. Uh, that was like my favorite time at USC was during that era uh, with like Rampage Jackson and uh, Randy Couture that, that was a fun one did you ever think about going that route no. not, not boxing obviously yeah, probably a little big for that but, yeah. but MMA like did you ever consider doing that or WWE even like when your football career is over or? Um, growing up like one of my really good friends at the time TJ Lucas he uh, he was always into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu so he would always go, and I, I'd kind of just kind of watch from the sideline because that it was fun to watch, but that's it's never been like my thing. And lastly, what's the worst piece of trash talk you've ever heard? Worst piece of trash talk. Uh, it's kind of hard to say like worst. There's always like random things that make you kind of like look at someone confused. 
I can't like it's hard to really like think of one like an example but there's been so many times where I'm just like what did you just say like really confused and like genuinely me like what did you just say because like, I'm really confused by it like, like you couldn't understand it or you were it just like just, wait was that an insult or just such a random reference or it's like try like it's a, such a random insult it's kind of hard to like really put into words what what was is there one insult that's so random that like it just sticks out in your head that you're just like i'm trying to remember because i knew especially in college um uh, i can't think of one like off the top of my head is there one piece of trash talk that you're like damn that was really good um yeah so during this most previous camp is pretty funny uh when we had a joint practice someone said i had no butt and i kind of just laughed i'm like yeah you're not wrong <laughs> who I'm, said that to you i don't know like because it's like as we're walking by and it's like i can't remember who said it but in my head i'm like he's not wrong at all i don't but it just made me laugh so hard because i'm like finally someone said something <laughs> was that a self-conscious thing for a while no, it was okay. just more so something funny. Like, I always get called, like, uh, I have a whole bunch of friends that say, like, oh, you have such a diaper booty in your football pants. I'm like, I've embraced I'm like, yeah, no, you're not wrong. I mean, <laughs> was that, wait, which joint practice was it? Was it Houston or was it New uh, Patriots? It was the Patriots. Yeah, and I just, I just laughed so hard. I'm like, because, like, usually I've, I've heard most things before, and I'm like, when someone's, like, clever and says something, I usually, like, I'll give them the props. Even if it's insulting to me, I'm like, whatever, that was clever. I haven't heard that. And, like, there's people that say it, but I haven't ever heard another, like, another team say it. So it was funny to me. Hey, Terrell, thank you so much for coming oh, on. Thank you for Appreciate it. Me. Hopefully it wasn't too painful for you. No. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll see you this week. All right, I appreciate you. You can read my next guest on ESPN.com and see him on ESPN everywhere as he covers everything Dallas Cowboys. It's Todd Archer. Todd, thanks for joining the Michael Rothstein Show. Hey, Mike, how we doing? I'm doing well. So let's start here because I think for Lions fans and I think for other people too, he's the most familiar person in Dallas to the Lions and maybe the one that a lot of people have the most questions about. Obviously, that's Kellen Moore. How's he been doing in his first year as an offensive coordinator in Dallas? Yeah, it's hard to argue with the success that, that he's had. I mean, you, you look at an offense that's averaging 437 yards a game, putting up point, 30 points a game. Um, you know, situationally, there have been issues here and there, including last week's game against Minnesota. But for a first-time play caller, um, and now I'm sure he's calling plays in his head from the time he was a, a little kid watching his dad's high school teams. But for a first-time play caller, he's he's hit all the high notes. He's done everything the right way. And um, everybody, you know, when I say everybody, I mean Jerry Jones. Everybody's happy with the job that he's done so far and how Dak's developed, how the running game's going how the, the pass game's going. There, there's a lot of positives so far for Kellen Moore. Does he mostly reference, and I don't know how he is when he talks to the media every week, but does he mostly reference maybe his time with Linehan? Does he ever reference his time behind Stafford as, as things he learned from, or does he not really talk about that at all? You know, Linehan is kind of his guy, right? Because he was with him up in Detroit all those years and came here to Dallas with, with Linehan, and obviously Scott made him the quarterback coach last year and started him on this track to, to be an offensive coordinator. Uh, he's talked about his time with Stafford and things like that. Um, maybe when the Cowboys have played the Lions and getting ready for those games over the years, but not really in depth to the point of like, 
what he learned from Matthew or, or, or uh, what it was like to play behind him. And I think part of that is everybody in Dallas kind of knows Matthew, right? He's a Highland Park kid. He, he, everybody knows his story. And, and so it's a little bit different. But I think he views Lindenhan as his guy that taught him the most. Um, and he refers to back often about things that they did in Detroit, things they did in Dallas. And then, of course, there's always the Boise influence as well um, from some of the things that the Cowboys like to do formationally and, and kind of, I don't say trick play, but stuff that gets dressed up more than, than typical NFL teams. Following on that, how much – so a lot of Lions fans, if they've been around for a little while, are obviously very familiar with Scott Linehan's offense. How much has Kellen Moore taken from that? into his own is it like 60 percent, 70 percent or is this going to look completely different for someone who might be thinking hey this might look a little bit like what they saw for a few years in Detroit yeah the, the bulk of this offense really Mike it's kind of been the same since Jason Garrett got here in 2007 and, and Garrett and Lindenhan worked together down in Miami they had a close relationship uh until recently I guess uh but the, the nuts and bolts to this offense has kind of been the same since Jason Garrett got here. Uh, and now what Kellen has done is kind of added some things, branched off some things with the RPO game, the zone read game, um, different route combinations, movements, shifts, formations are, are a little mixed up. But the core of this offense remains the same. And I, I think that's where Kellen's brought a little juice that they've lacked here. Where in the past it was, hey, we got Des Bryant, and he's just going to be better than everybody, and we can beat you. And we got Jason Witten. He's unbelievable at creating leverage and, and creating space for a guy that doesn't run fast. We can just beat you. Now you get Kellen Moore has kind of been able to take those dynamics with a Witten even at 37 and now Amari Cooper and uh, these other guys that they got. While also scheming it to a situation that puts defenses in a bind to where whatever they choose is wrong. Uh, just in terms of combination of routes, uh, different ways that the, where guys line up. It's not as staid as it was maybe the last couple of years under, under Scott Linehan. Have you seen actual growth from Kellen as the year has gone on, or is that tough to really gauge until maybe the season's over and, and you kind of see where it ends up? Yeah. You know, I think we're going to see the growth this week because, you know, the Minnesota game is really the first time where everybody kind of said, what was that? Because if you go back to that game, for the people who don't know, uh, the Cowboys move right down the field in the last four minutes. They get to the Minnesota 11. Uh, it's second and two, and you call Zeke Elliott run. Usually a pretty good deal, although in this game, Cowboys couldn't run the ball. They get to third and two, and they call a, a, a zone read or an RPO, I'm sorry, and loses three yards. So everybody's like, wait a minute, you just moved up, up and down the field all day throwing the ball, and you use the two biggest situations of the game to run it when you've not run it all game. So this is really the first week where Kellen's going to hear some questions about decisions and why they did what they did. Um, but, but honestly, even when he's had some, um, or this offense that bad early in the season against New Orleans, this has been a situation where if, if the offense didn't work, well, Jason Garrett gets the blame. If the, if the offense is great, man, Kellen Moore's a genius. This is kind of the first week where it's going to be, all right, Kellen, what are you thinking here in, in, in that situation and why would you do what you do? This will be a big week to see how much he grows because it's really the first time he's kind of come under some question. 
Which actually leads to what I was curious about next, which is this team's been a bit up and down this year. At times they look like they could win the NFC, and then other times they lose to the Jets. So where exactly is this team? <laughs> yeah, man, I, it, it, this is a hard team to figure. And, you know, they've not beat a team with a winning record at the time they played them since week 13 last year when they played uh, New Orleans and upset them uh, when Drew Brees was healthy and all that at AT&T Stadium. Since then, the average, you know, they've only won two other games against teams either 500 or better than 0-0 to start a season. Um, so what they are is what they are. They're trending towards 8-8 eight and eight right now uh, because they can beat the teams that they're supposed to beat, and they lose to the teams that they could beat but would be generally an e- considered – even game, Green Bay, New Orleans, and uh, Minnesota last week. By the way, those guys didn't have Adam Thielen and uh, Devontae Adams and Drew Brees when the Cowboys played him and they lost. And then you get the Jets game that kind of threw everything out of whack. Uh, so I, I don't I don't know what team to expect Sunday up in Detroit as to who shows up. I just know they'll, they'll move the ball well, they'll score some points, and then defensively, obviously they'll be helped out greatly if Stafford's not playing. Right, which is a huge question here. I mean, do they – obviously, it's early in the week, so we don't know how they'll necessarily approach it. But I'm guessing they approach it like Stafford plays unless, you know, Matt Patricia does something crazy and rules them out, which doesn't seem like that's going to happen at least early in the week. Yeah, I, I, that's what – they could rule them out, and Jason Garrett would still say we're preparing as if Stafford's going to play just because – He'll say something like, you prepare for the scheme, not the player. Blah, blah, you know what coach speak is. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're, as, as of right now, they're going to be out there thinking that Stafford will be playing. And, you know, he's a guy that I, – I, was it the last game up there where he had the one-yard quarterback sneak at the last couple seconds? That was uh, thir- 2013. That was when Calvin had like 360 yards yeah, receiving. Yeah. yeah, and then he had the fake spike and ran in on the last play. Yeah, that was 13. And that was a nice job by the Cowboys defense choosing not to double team Calvin Johnson at all on that one. <laughs> I mean, let's be, let's be honest though. When Calvin Johnson was on and that was still Calvin Johnson's prime, it didn't matter if you double teamed him. He caught one triple yeah. coverage that game. I think if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's true. But they, they chose not, they didn't change it up at all. That was Monty Kiffin's live. That actually led to another Lions uh, member of history, Rod Marinelli becoming the defensive coordinator basically after that game and became the guy in 2014 when they moved on from Monty Kiffin. Oh, man, now that, you, now that we're going down memory lane a little bit, I remember because that was when they decided to put Brandon Carr on him, like one-on-one almost the whole game, and that was yeah. kind of the beginning of the end of Brandon Carr, too. Uh, well, it, and what's funny is Brandon Carr started every game until this year in, in Baltimore. Uh, he's never missed a game, and he's a Michigan guy, right? He's a Flint guy. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, he's – Brandon Carr is a, a guy around here where people say that he's why the Cowboys don't sign big-time free agents anymore because he, he got paid $50 million bucks and he had seven interceptions over his five years that he was with the Cowboys. A good player that cashed in on a system at the right time and, you know, and one of the best guys that you could possibly want to cover from our perspective. Really good dude. Now, we've talked a little bit about Jason Garrett and all this. And it seems like – Every time I see you, because the Lions and Cowboys have played a bit over the years, at least in the last seven years, there always seems to be a will-they-won't-they-keep-him conversation at the end of the year. You said they're trending towards 8-8. Eight and eight. What does Jason Garrett actually need to do to 
kind of get to 2020? The easy answer is say they have to get to the NFC title game because they've made it to the second round of the playoffs under them uh, a couple times. So they have to do something they've not done yet for Jerry to keep them. And he doesn't have a contract after this year. So he's really coaching for his job. And he, he's on, he's on the line now these last seven games uh, for more than he's ever been on the line, let's say, because in 2014, he was in a similar spot uh, entering that season without a contract three straight, eight and eight years leading into that season. Well, the Cowboys went 12-4 and four that year and one of the better teams in the NFC. And I know people in Detroit still don't understand why uh, Anthony Hitchens wasn't called for pass interference in that play, the same way Cowboys fans don't understand why Des Bryant's catch was ruled not a catch the following week in Green Bay. But this is, this is it for Jason Garrett. Uh, you know, Jerry's been pace wanted without getting the Cowboys further in the playoffs. Certainly if they miss the playoffs and don't win the division, absolutely he's not going to be back and they'll be looking for another head coach after this year. Yeah. By the way, when you mentioned that 2014 game, my producer just shuddered and uh, I I think he, (laughs) he he just had, he got a little bit of, uh, of NFL PTSD from, from that. So I appreciate that. Uh, Just lastly, I want to ask at least before we hit the rabbit fire part of this, they obviously have three offensive stars. Zeke got his money. Do they end up paying all of them? Because, I mean, that's a big, that's, it seems like been a big question around the Cowboys yeah. for, what, the past 12 months now? Ultimately, I think they will pay these guys. It's just a matter of how they get to it. Uh, if you had asked me right now with Dak Prescott, I think you will get a franchise tag. Um, not because the Cowboys don't believe him, not because they don't want to pay him a lot of money. They, they want to do all that. It's just the way that it's trend, trending that he's been able to turn down what they've offered him now, which you have to believe is north of $100 million guaranteed when you look at contracts signed by Goff and Wentz and some of these other guys. Uh, if he's turning that down now, what changes between now and, and next March where the Cowboys move appreciably to get a deal done? So I, I think there will ultimately be a franchise tag there, and then maybe by June they were to get something done. And I think with Amari Cooper, um, I, I think they get something done with him and get it worked out. It, the reason why that one's not really – progressed or had much discussion is because Amari hasn't really wanted to. There's been some uh, agent stuff going on in the background that has kind of delayed the process, but uh, I think Amari Cooper realizes that the Cowboys have been good for him. He's certainly been good for the Cowboys, and it just makes too much sense for the Cowboys to let this guy walk after giving a first-round pickup to Oakland last year. So ultimately, I think they'll be able to keep all three of these guys, and they'll have to reconfigure some other uh, spots in their roster based on those decisions because they'll be so top-heavy when you look at their offensive line, how much money they've got invested there. And defensive line, Demarcus Lawrence is one of the f- highest-paid uh, defensive ends. Linebacker Jalen Smith, they took care of his numbers pretty high this year although, or the following year. So they, they've made their their decisions, in, but keeping Cooper and Prescott is 1-1A one one uh, in what they're remaining on their to-do list. And Todd, we, every guest that we have, we end with a rapid-fire segment. If you're game, a few quick-hit questions, and, uh, and sure. off we go. Who is the most interesting cowboy you've covered? Tony Romo. What's the most interesting? Is that interesting? it? <laughs> uh, oh, if you, if you, feel free to expand. <laughs> okay. 
Romo, just because of where he came from, the, the story, undrafted free agent, blossoming into the, one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, just everything about his story is probably the, 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 the best part of the thing that I've been able to cover since covering this team. What's the most interesting season you've covered? And for those who don't know, you've been in Cincinnati, you've been in Miami, you've been in Dallas. What's the most interesting season throughout your entire career covering the league? I would probably go 2003, my first year on the Cowboys, because it was Bill Parcells' first year here as well. And I had been around Bill a little bit earlier in my career, but uh, t- him taking a team that went 5-11 and 11 straight, three straight years, making them 10-6 and six and going to the playoffs that first year, the best coaching job I've seen uh, of any team that I covered. So I would say Parcells in 03, that season stands out more than, than anything else that I've covered. So when you started out in this profession, I think you started out in Concord, New Hampshire, correct? Concord, New Hampshire, yep. What was the gig you wanted when you were, you know, the little pup reporter in Concord coming out, you know, coming out of Northeastern? Well, I can come back. I can go back even further than that. My senior year in high school, the local newspaper did a story on me. I, was, I played baseball. I can't say it was any good, but I played baseball. I was okay, but I got sick my senior year. I had the same uh, illness that Travis Frederick had last year, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And so I basically missed almost all of my senior year, but they did a story on me and the comeback and all that feel-good stuff, at least they tried to. And I said my goal, and my I wanted to be a sports writer, and the guy asked me what my goal was, and I said, I want to cover the NBA final sitting next to Bob Ryan at the Boston Globe. I was able to sit next to Bob at a number of events, not covering the Celtics in the finals, but, um, you know, that I, this is something that I wanted to do uh, from the time I was in high school, and it's been – it's it's – as I tell people, it beats working. And this is this is a pretty cool gig. Kind of since you mentioned obviously what happened to Travis Frederick last year and that you experienced it, did that give you a different type of perspective than maybe any other story you've covered in your career because you lived that? Yeah, and you know I was at a different place. Obviously, I was a 17-year-old senior in high school, and he's a 20-something-year-old professional athlete. So. Uh, the, the differences in how we were treated were a lot different just because of the, the gains in, in medic- medicine over the years. But we were able to discuss similarities and feelings and uh, how our bodies reacted. And it did um, – it, it became more emotional to me than I thought it was uh, because I kind of put that in the rear view. But it kind of brought up some old things uh, that that still stick with you 30-some-odd years later. So – yeah, that, that seeing Travis come back has been a, um, a cool part of this story. His story has been cool for me because I know what it took for him to come back. I was say, did you guys, did you guys have an, end up having pretty long conversations about that? Yeah, yeah. We talked off to the side about things, and he asked me questions about what to expect, and I tried to tell him what I remembered. And, you know, it took me about a year to feel normal again. Um and he kind of he came back faster but I still think there's some elements of his uh recovery that he's still kind of working through even even now and that's going to be something that's you know it's not an ACL it's not a knee scope it's just something you really can't predict uh and he's you know I I feel I'm just happy from that he's able to come back and play and lastly I'll end it on a little bit lighter note perhaps what's the best Jerry quote you've heard Oh, well, there's so many to go through, but 
and I don't even know if I can say this one on the show, but I'm going to. Um, training camp, gosh, four or five years ago maybe, I want me some glory hole is what Jerry Jones said. So uh, can we say that on the air? Is that all right? Sure. Yeah, we can say uh, that on the air. <laughs> uh, that, that, that one, like, it just makes you perk up and say, what did he just say? And he explained it a little bit uh, more. But that was, yeah, that one, that stands at the top of the list for me when it comes to stuff that Jerry has said uh, over the years. So how did he explain that? Uh, basically, he wants to win a championship. Uh, and it's been too long, and, he, and he's tired of having to wait. Uh, he's tired of waiting for the glory. And he came up with, I want me some glory hole. <laughs> Jerry Jones, always I'm interesting. To Jerry, just deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, Jerry Jones is always interesting, and, and you got to cover him every day. Todd, thank you so much for coming on, and I'll see you Sunday. Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Regents Field, Ann Arbor's True Sports Bar, 204 South Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Come on by to check out some great food, including some gluten-free options, drink specials, and check out the free ski ball and darts as well. You can also record a podcast of your very own here, too. Check out RegentsField.com or find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at RegentsField. Now, back to our show. I want to thank my guests, Tyrell Crosby and Todd Archer, for coming on tonight. You can read Todd Archer on ESPN.com. Follow him on Twitter at Todd Archer. You can follow Tyrell Crosby on Twitter and Instagram, and you probably should, at Tyrell Crosby. You can read me at ESPN.com and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Rothstein, on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist, and check out my travel blog, complete with gluten-free suggestions in every city, at michaelrothstein.net. Thanks to Regents Field, as always, for hosting this podcast. Come on by to enjoy some great food, including some gluten-free options, drink specials, and check out the free ski ball and darts as well. You can also record a podcast of your very own here, just like me. Check out RegentsField.com or find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at RegentsField. This has been Episode 6. Thanks for listening. And since we've been around for almost two months now, let us know how we're doing. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, at least when you can rate, review, and subscribe in those places. Let us know what you'd like to hear about, who you'd like to hear from, from the world of sports, even if it's beyond the Detroit Lions, because... This podcast will transition to more of a general sports podcast once the Lions season is over. Thanks to my producer, Matt Leach, and my editor, David Woodley. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere else you choose to listen to your podcast. Would love your feedback as this show continues to grow. See you next week.